Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 306. This is the weekly podcast about American flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This podcast is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free nationwide online directory to florists, shops, and studios who design with American-grown flowers and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor for 2017, Certified American Grown Flowers. The Certified American Grown program and label provide a guarantee for designers and consumers on the source of their flowers. Take pride in your flowers and buy with confidence. Ask for Certified American Grown Flowers. To learn more, visit americangrownflowers.org. Last week, we heard from Rebecca Reed, U.S. sales executive for David Austin Garden Roses. I learned so much from Rebecca about these beloved and increasingly popular roses for both the landscape and floral arranging. And if you haven't listened yet, head on over to episode 305. It's the perfect lead-in for today's equally fabulous topic, clematis. Because so many of my friends are involved in the Pacific Northwest horticulture community, and because I was once deeply embedded in it myself, serving as the Northwest Horticultural Society's Garden Notes newsletter editor for several years, I've been vaguely aware of the existence of a rare clematis collection taking root outside Portland, Oregon, but I'd never visited the garden where it was housed. Then last year, I met Phyllis McKenna while speaking to the Portland Garden Club, and she asked me to visit more than once. Phyllis was gently persuasive with her warm invitations, and about a month ago, when I found myself driving to Portland for a series of scouting appointments, I arranged to meet Phyllis and see the clematis I'd been hearing so much about. As it turns out, Phyllis is the board president of the Friends of the Rogerson Clematis Collection, which is located at the historic Lusher Farm, part of Lake Oswego's Park and Recreation System outside Portland, Oregon. The Friends Group was formed in 2005 to ensure that Brewster Rogerson's amazing collection of clematis would be maintained and nurtured over time. Since then, the collection has grown from a group of beautiful plants in pots to an assemblage of beautiful plants in a delightful garden. Its mission is to preserve and foster the Rogerson Clematis collection in a permanent home, observing its longtime objective of assembling and maintaining as comprehensive a collection of the genus Clematis as possible for the advancement of botanical and horticulture research and education and pleasure of all who visit. I was delighted to reconnect with Phyllis and with my guest today, Linda Butler. Linda is a fifth-generation Oregonian and lifelong gardener who left floral design in 2007 when she signed on as the curator of the Rogerson Clematis Garden, now North America's foremost collection of the genus Clematis. Linda is the author of several books, including Garden to Vase, Growing and Using Your Own Cut Flowers, which Timber Press published in 2007, now out of print, but available used on Amazon and at Powell's Books Online. She also wrote Gardening with Clematis in 2004 and The Plant Lover's Guide to Clematis, which Timber Books published last year. And you can see a cover photo of that book um, at our show notes today at DebraPrinzing.com. 
Linda's love of gardening began with harvesting strawberries with her grandfather at age three and being given her own plot for radishes and string beans at age five. Her home garden in the Selwood neighborhood of Portland reflects her garden passions, including old garden roses, herbaceous perennials, and shrubs for cutting, and her 200 favorite clematis. Linda has been an adjunct instructor of horticulture at Clackamas Community College in Oregon City, which is in Oregon, since 1996. She is the current president of the International Clematis Society, and she has also been known to dabble in Jane Austen fan fiction. We don't have time to talk about that during this episode, but it's very fun. Please enjoy this conversation and stay tuned for a bonus tip from Linda at the end of the interview. Does she or doesn't she use rubbing alcohol to extend the base life of her cut clematis? You'll have to listen to hear. So let's get started. Hi, Linda Butler. It's so good to see you. Hello, Deborah. It's wonderful to see you again. And I, we are also here uh, with Phyllis McKenna. Hi, Phyllis. Hello, Deborah. And these two ladies have been regaling me with clematis stories just because it's pouring rain out, so we came indoors. We are at the Rogerson Clematis Collection and Garden in Westland or Lake Oswego. What's the official city? We are in, in unincorporated Clackamas County, okay. technically, between the two cities. Okay. But we are on ground that is owned by Lake Oswego. It's Lusher Farm, which was a dairy. And they bought it and operated it as a farm park. Okay, so this is so, south of Portland, about 30 minutes, right? Yes, right off of the 205 freeway. Okay, so um, we're going to talk about clematis. Linda is a, a, the expert on gardening with clematis, growing clematis. And we've known each other kind of superficially through the Garden Writers community. and For a long time. Yeah. Let's not say how long. Here in the PNW. <laughs> yes. Um, and so when Phyllis invited me to come see the garden, and I, I didn't know you were going to be here, I'm so excited that I had my, re- my little recorder with me, Linda, because I want to I want hear the story about this place. Okay. And Phyllis is going to jump in with her observations, too. because yes, she's I am. She's going to talk <laughs> about the goal of this place. But... Um, Maybe we should just start with this. What is the Rogers and Clematis Collection, Linda? And what is your role? Are you the curator? I am the curator. Brewster Rogerson was a professor of English at Kansas State University in Manhattan, Kansas. In 1971, he had a house built for himself, and he went out and bought four clematis because he had this vine-covered cottage idea. But Brewster had that collecting gene, mm-hmm. and we don't have to really go into it, but he collected first edition literary works. I mean, he was, he was a person. collector. So he went to find out information about how best to grow these plants. And if you think about gardening in the 1970s, there wasn't a lot of information about clematis. And I think clematis have gone through their, their cycles the way hydrangeas have. And, you know, roses go in and out of fashion. They go from being wonderful glamour girls to being too much work and so clematis were at a real ebb mm, as far mm-hmm. as the tide of their fashion went and so he started connecting with people basically all over the world and was the first um, member to sign up for the International Clematis Society when Raymond Evison started it in the 1980s. And were most of his uh, correspondence or pen pals in the UK and Asia? Or, I mean, well, they weren't all in the US, right? S- Sweden, Canada, 
England a lot, mm-hmm. um, Poland, hmm. uh, and Japan, all mm-hmm. really all over the world, mm-hmm. New Zealand. So all these enthusiasts kind of swapped stories. This right. is sort of at the emerging days of the internet, probably right. as well. Right. right. And Brewster was an early adopter. Oh, he was a Mac man from the beginning until the day he died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Kansas and Portland are quite a ways away from each yes, other. Yes, when Brewster retired, he <laughs> decided, well, okay, so he buys his first Clematis in 1971. By 1975, he's writing to people and describing himself as a collector. Mm-hmm. And prior to him and I looking through his archives together, he had always thought that he started the collection in 1975. But he and I found letters that he wrote in 75 talking about buying his first Clematis in 1971. Fortunately, we had that conversation in two, uh, 2011, and I said, oh my God, Brewster, this is the 40th year. So we had a volunteer at the same time who has made us this gorgeous, gorgeous sundial, mm. which is calibrated to the founder's garden here. And we do have a founder's garden where Brewster's, you know, several dozen favorite Clematis are all planted together. That's cool. Yeah. Okay. So, so he retires yeah. and decides that zone eight might be better than zone four, that he might be able to grow a lot more clematis out here. So he moved the Pacific Northwest and initially settled in Eugene simply because he knew some of the faculty at U of O and realized he was only there about five years and realized that really Portland was more the hub of horticulture um, sure. than Eugene was, and, and even though and, there's some fabulous gardens in yeah, Eugene. Yeah, and people which, who don't know the Northwest, that's like about another 100 90 miles. minutes, yeah, yeah, 90 minutes, I would say, okay. if you drive the way I do. So he wanted to migrate closer to Portland, yeah. and I agree, Eugene's got a lot of horticulture, too. So he made friends with Bob Gutman, who had Gutman Nurseries, which was a Clematis specialty nursery out in, in North Plains, west of Portland. Oh. And in exchange for housing the collection in containers, because for Brewster they were beautiful objects that happened to be alive. Hmm. And Interesting. He, he never had any ambition to put them in the ground. He would never have described himself as a gardener. He always said he was a scholar of the genus. So I mean, how many times like, have you heard that, Phyllis? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. He, was, he was a scholar. Yeah. That's so mind-boggling, but I guess in the end... It was easier to move the collection for oh hell you, yeah right oh, yeah <laughs> yeah he carted all these like what one gallon pots from Kansas? all different sizes okay. from Kansas of course at the time at that time he only had about a hundred plants okay but by the time we took over the friends of the Rogers and Clematis collection took over the collection it was nine hundred plants and they were in everything from. Uh, six packs of seedlings that he'd started to seven, 15, or even a couple of 15 gallon plants mm, and wow. everything in between. So he moved, he had like a little five year stint in Eugene and then he moved up to this property that's sort of West of Portland right. at, a, he, at a nursery. Yeah. What year was and, that? Um, I want to say probably 86 or so. Okay. Because okay. the collection was really at Gutman's for 15 years. And was it called the Rogerson? Well, it was his personal oh, collection. Okay, so people it, knew about it. If they knew him and if they were part of the International Clematis Society, and then the other smart thing he did was he got very involved in Hardy Plant right mm-hmm. away. And he, you know, being an English professor, 
he edited their newsletter. Hardy for, Plant Society of Oregon. Yeah. And is that, that you were really, you're really involved in that, right? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. some of, I was actually starting to collect Clematis before I met Brewster, but that's, an, that's another story for another day. <laughs> we're talking about him. Um, oh, no, we're going to talk about you, too. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I was the director of their plant sale. Oh, wow. For, through most of the 90s till 2002. And, of course, he was selling plants. So he was kind of a quasi-nurseryman. He would bring Clematis right. to the cell. Okay. Right. Wow. Okay. So you kind of knew him. Mm-hmm. You knew, you, yeah. And we, knew you were interested yeah. in Clematis. Oh, yeah. We got to be collegial, I mm-hmm. would say. Mm-hmm. Definitely a student-mentor mm-hmm. relationship through most of it. That's cool. And then, ultimately, we got to be friends. I bet. I bet. And so what happened to the collection, and why did it have to leave uh, the Gutmans? Well, Bob and Carol Gutman were not getting any younger, mm-hmm. and so they they decided uh, to go from being a broad spectrum clematis nursery selling all different kinds to they scaled back initially to just selling the evergreens because mm-hmm. Bob has an amazing ability to propagate the evergreens. He has success other people don't have. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of so, their niche. Yeah. So they they downsized to what he and his wife Carol could do. And they would have, it would have been fine if Brewster had never gotten older and never gotten macular degeneration. Mm. And Brewster was a very independent person. It was very hard for him to give up his driver's license. Mm. He was so particular about color. And think about the 1990s when... Um, Clematis were having a resurgent. Christopher Lloyd had had done a book and then updated the book, and then Raymond Evison started writing, and and uh, other people, mainly British, started mm-hmm. writing about Clematis. And in the meantime, every month at the International Clematis Society webpage, for a hundred months, Brewster did the Clematis of the month write up, mm. selected the plant, got the pictures did the research, did a write-up. Wow. And so suddenly there was this information, there was another golden age emerging. For, and this body of knowledge. Yeah. Wow. And so um, he invited people to come out and see all of these plants in, in pots. And when he was first diagnosed with macular degeneration, he realized that his his days of being you know sort of autonomous out there were becoming rapidly limited so he invited the international clematis society to come out and and get involved and and come out and see the garden so i was really involved in that initial getting them getting that organized and then once that came and went then a local group and it was Sean Hogan, Morris Horn, uh, so Sista's Nursery, Joy Creek Nursery, Lucy Hardiman, garden designer, Mike Darcy, our, our radio and, and that early on even still TV guy, garden guy locally. Um, the who's who oh, of Portland the, horticulture. The who's who of Portland mm-hmm. horticulture was pounding the pavement all over the greater Portland area looking for a home. Mm-hmm. for the collection mm-hmm. we were meeting sometimes several times a month at seven in the morning in the boardroom of the radio station where mike worked 
and just sort of groping around trying to figure out what to do. And we're really feeling like we had exhausted the options when Mike Darcy asked me if he thought he should approach Lake Oswego because he knew, I mean, Mike lives in Lake Oswego. So he knew, well, first of all, he had done a little pocket park project by his house in his neighborhood. And so he had a contact and he knew that they had bought Lusher Farm Hmm. and were sort of transitioning it into Oregon Tilth was here with a big organic garden demonstration. They had, they've got 11 and a half acres of community supported agriculture. That's the only for profit things that, that happens on the farm, but they started offering a bunch of classes out here and, and things were developing. Wow, cool. So Mike said, should I talk to like us? We go. And I said, sure. Like we might as well give them a chance to say no, just like everybody else, <laughs> except this is the beauty part. They never said no. Wow. What they, year, what year was that? That would have been November of 2004 hmm. was when Mike first went out to coffee with a guy named Jerry Knipple. And Mike went with one of his neighbors, Nancy Gronowski who was president before Phyllis of the Friends of the Rogers and Columbus Collection. And Nancy is, was, uh, she's retired now, but a landscape architect and project manager for City of Portland Parks and Rec. So there was a credibility level there. Yes. For the, it's yes. for hobbyists. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And they never said no. So that was November of 2004. By January, end of January 2005, we were on the city council agenda to authorize them to negotiate with us about moving the collection here. Wow. And the collection moved here in December of 2005. Wow. So just a little bit more than a year to turn that around. Yeah. And when the collection moved here, what did that entail? You said that Brewster had 900 plants. 900 Did you move them all here? Um, 450 taxa. Okay. Um, 900 plants in all different sizes of containers. Um, So Bob still had his big truck and he, part of his business had passed on to one of his employees, Dave McCoy, who has McCoy family nursery. Okay. And so Dave came, I mean, we, it was Brewster and I had come out and, and we, um, the, the biggest thing also was stability of funding. Brewster was very concerned about that. We had a private a donor a, approach us with a matching grant. And that person would give us $10,000 if our board and membership could raise $10,000. Mm-hmm. And that built the big greenhouse. Oh, wow. And so we had a place for them to come. and Because they didn't all go right in the ground right away. Oh, it took us, honestly, 10 years to get every one of those original plants in the ground. Wow. Wow. Some of them got in very fast because some of the garden could be developed faster than other parts could. So describe the garden now. Um, how much acreage does it uh, in, encompass? So we're like 12 years in, it sounds like, from, from when you moved in, like 2005 to 2017. Yeah, it was really 2006 because it was December okay. of 2005 when, okay, we, so when we moved the plants. A little bit more than 10 years. Yeah. So when you say it's taken 10 years, it's only been in the last few years that you feel like everything's kind of 
been placed where it needs to be. And yeah, well, um, the modern garden, yeah. which is two years old, was the the last place where some of Brewster's originally accessioned and um, inventoried plants okay. got put in the ground. Wow. Yeah. These plants are. You can't kill them, can you? <laughs> oh, yeah, you can, but uh, it really you really have to work. <laughs> well, you, were, you, you obviously, we have pe- people who know what they're doing. Yeah, here. right. So the display garden is the first thing that people see when they come, right, right, behind the farmhouse? Right. When we moved here, the city asked us to do three things. There had been an apple orchard. The trees were a mess. There's really only one of those trees that we were able to salvage, a big Gravenstein. But they did want an orchard put back, which we did. And then they had, were looking out the window mm-hmm. at a gigantic copper beach. Right. And they had, through the National Wildlife Federation, designated the area around that beach tree as backyard bird habitat. But then they didn't really do anything to maintain it. And, you know, National Wildlife Federation, it's great, but... Their backyard bird habitat thing is you fill out a form. There's no vetting. Right, right. You know, and and you get your little plaque. So we went one further and um, really added more natives. We've got year-round feeders, year-round water, um, so that we have actually a silver certificate as backyard habitat through... Uh, the consortium that is Portland Audubon, Tryon Creek is involved in that, aren't they, mm-hmm. Phyllis? Yes. Uh-huh. And the Three Rivers Conservancy. Yes. And so it's much, it's, it's more a functioning, thing. Yeah. And it's been vetted and it's been inspected. And we are the only public garden in the Tri County area here around Portland mm. that is part of that program because it's meant for private gardens. Sure. But the point is here's a public garden where in this defined area you can see that backyard habitat doesn't have to look like a wild mangy mess right and then the other thing they wanted was um an antique rose garden around the farmhouse the Mm. farmhouse was built in 1900 so that first family that built the farmhouse was here until about the beginning of world war one and so we have said everything that we put in there is pre-world war one and were they the Lushers? Or? No, the okay. Lushers came out along later. Okay. So the uh, collection uh, display garden is what, like an acre or? I think altogether it's an acre and a half. Yes. And we actually have about two acres of space if mm-hmm. you look at our contract with mm-hmm. the city. I love what you said before we turn on the recorder that the, one of the things that you're doing here is showing people how to add clematis to gardens that already exist that's that's brilliant because clematis on their own kind of look like people here they don't they look nude people here here that we have 1700 clematis which we do 1707 that's Mm -hmm. why they pay me to know this stuff um and people assume we have that many trellises or that many linear feet sure. of fence. And we don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, the major portions of the display gardens are clematis interwoven with other things. And plants that do have supports are either big things like the clematis Montana group, which those plants get huge and 
if you're going to put them in a tree, you want that tree to have a 20 year running start. <laughs> right. But so you need to trellis. So those. those are trellised, but uh, in a lot of other ways, they're just mingling in with each other, which makes signage a real trick. Mm-hmm. So we just uniformly put the name tags at the at the base of the plant, at the crown of the plant, but sometimes it's flowering 10 feet away wow. from where the sign is. Sure. But that interwovenness and the plant combinations, the color combinations, that's really, and this year, I just feel like for whatever reason, our plant combinations are stunning this year. They're just wonderful. Well, your interest in design it fascinates me because I use the term gardener florist and yeah. you know, we hear the term farmer florist being tossed around mm-hmm. in the slow flower world all the time. Right. I like the gardener florist. I, I des- describe your journey to <laughs> becoming a gardener florist. Were you a gardener first or a florist first? I have been a gardener my whole life. Okay. Gardening family. I Everybody had vegetables when I was a little kid. And when I got to that sort of you know, you get into your 20s, you're a young woman, you're taking over the the state occasions for the family, and suddenly you're hosting the Christmas dinner. And I was picking out my centerpiece before I was deciding on the menu, hmm. invariably. Mm-hmm. And so I spent my 20s working at the Multnomah County Library because my degree is in English. So... There was another connection that was destined for Brewster and I to make. Garrison Keeler would have loved you. <laughs> so an English uh, major. Yeah. So then, um, through you know, being in a public employee was yeah. not my thing, mm-hmm. and so I was able to leave and go to floral design school. But I was already a gardener mm-hmm. and already very interested. Inter- interested in cutting gardens and what could be used for cutting gardens. And as my career evolved as a florist, I also got invited to teach a series of classes that I'm still teaching at Clackamas Community College called the Flower Arrangers Garden. Mm. And it was really about growing and using your own cut flowers and empowering the home gardener to make their own arrangements and not be fearful or intimidated and yeah, so feel confident that, about it. Right. So and how long have you been teaching that? Twenty six years. Wow. I mean it's your yeah. class. You developed yeah. the curriculum. Yeah. And that has yeah. sort of became the structure for your book, right? For Garden to Vase. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The students have to do their own reports. They have to come to the class with um, reporting about plants that are new to them and how to use them as cut flowers. And so the directory in Garden to Vase, Growing and Using Your Own Cut Flowers, Timber Press, 2007, now out of print. That's um, all right. We'll put, a link in, <laughs> we'll put a link in the show notes so people can find it. And um, there's over 200 plants listed in there in a, in a directory. Mm-hmm. And it's everything, shrubs, perennials, annuals, vines, clematis. And it's... A lot of those were things that came to me that I hadn't thought of before that students That's presented cool. in class. So uh, while you were teaching, you were also still working as a floral designer? Yeah. And yeah. So what, this was like... So the we're, eight, talking, about the 90s. Oh, the we're 90s. talking about the 90s. We're talking about the 90s, basically. And then, and then I started collecting clematis, um, and 
<laughs> you went down and, the yeah, rabbit hole. <laughs> I went down the rabbit hole. And so then once I bought my own house in 92, then it really, you know, just expanded. And of course, by then I knew Brewster. And so he was aiding and abetting the delinquency of a minor, but in a big way. And um, we were actually enabling each other. It was always such a delight to be able to give him something I knew he didn't have. And, and watch and, his and, Yeah, and especially during that time when he was, when the Clematis, when I started volunteering for him. And, and so that's another sort of piece of this puzzle is that. In the early 2000s, I think I started actually volunteering for him in the fall of 2002. But there were an increasing number of us who started going out to Goopman's to help Brewster in the greenhouse that he had. Just to kind of wrap your arms around it. Yeah. Yeah. And knew that he needed help. He needed help. They knew this was really valuable. It was something unique. And he couldn't. He could no longer really take care of it by himself. There were no employees per se, right? Correct. None whatsoever. Okay. Hmm. So this community, even the people that you talked about who wanted to save the garden, there were many more who supported him by just volunteering to what prune and and weed and yeah, all of water that. And yeah, we learned how to propagate. We developed thanks to Bob Gutman's generosity we got to mess around with all the different soil components that Bob had on the place for the nursery so we came up with our own potting soil for clematis for clematis wow. and it really um it was kind of funny we all learned a whole lot more about growing clematis in pots than anybody ever mm-hmm. needs to know right because that's how they were and for those of us who were gardeners who I was buying clematis and taking them home, putting them in the ground. Right, like you're um, supposed to. <laughs> you, I would walk into that greenhouse, and it was like my lungs would constrict. And when I left at the end of my shift, I would start breathing again. Because when we got those plants here, and in the August or uh, September and October of 2006, when we started actually putting them in mm-hmm. the ground, it was like liberating them. It was like... Be free. Oh, I can't imagine what the root balls were like. You know, these were five-gallon pot-bound plants. Wow. They needed to move here, and they needed to have Absolutely. real soil to grow in. But that wasn't his thing. And, and it, did he understand what you were doing here? Oh, I mean, absolutely. He was supportive oh, of it? He was relieved. Um, and especially when we, in, in the last few years of his life, we had and still have a really great core of volunteers of which Phyllis is one as well as doing all she does administratively with FRCC. Um, He really started to see the whole garden take shape and the, the right about the time that he died, all of the structure was in for the, modern garden so mm-hmm. it was he really got to see mm-hmm. the whole thing so even though his eyesight was really poor he could see shapes and forms and, and he of... actually his macular degeneration is a really cruel thing because your distance vision and your peripheral vision is still sharp okay so you're always this sort of looking to the side he was always trying to figure out invent some way that the mirror you could do mirrors 
that would reflect a sharp image into the parts of your retina that still could see. Interesting. Yeah. So there was enough vision yeah. for him to understand. And he yeah. would take um, a magnifying glass um, and go into the greenhouse and hold the plant. We have gorgeous photographs of him holding plants through his fingers and be able to identify it or use a magnifying glass to see what he wanted to mm. see. But he would enjoy this at least once a week, sometimes a couple times yeah. a week, just to walk through the greenhouse and the garden to look that's the super meaningful. Yeah. Love the, that. The volunteers brought him out on Tuesday, and then I brought him out on Thursdays. So if he was up to it, he was out here at least twice a week. So, Linda, is this a full-time job for you? No. <laughs> Phyllis, would you like to address <laughs> no, that? I mean, you're um, still writing and teaching. I'm still writing okay. and teaching. Okay. Um, but I'm here starting in July. It'll be 14 hours a week. Okay. But the goal, ultimately... I believe for FRCC is to have the curator be here 32 hours a week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and it's just a, 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 the evolution as the gardens mature and get more and financing. Fun. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Maybe not so obviously. <laughs> well, people, really do people pay admission to come here? No, we okay. really don't have, um, we cannot actually charge a fee because this is on public property as part of the city of Lake Oswego park and recreation district or department, but we have a number of sources of revenue, our membership, um, a couple of events, especially the Inviting Vines tour, um, plant sales, and grants are just, we're just getting the hang of how do we apply for grants and win grants and mm-hmm. see that kind of come mm-hmm. to us. And so those are the, the really the primary things. But we're now starting more and more private tours, so we can't charge for people to come to visit. and They can walk through at any point in time during the day, but if they would like a docent-led or a curator-led um, tour, we now have that available for people as well. That's brilliant. And private yeah. classes. Linda's yeah. doing a private class for a group of master gardeners so people could design the kind of class they would like. And sure. Do that for them. Well, I mean, I think it's the, it's the future of public gardens. You're just not going to get, you know, the kind of support, you know, financial resources that you need. And so you have to be very inventive about it. And Correct. You're and showing that. Like Oswego has been very, a, very, yeah. a wonderful partner. Oh, they yeah. Not to take away from that. And well, and there are a lot of public gardens that got their start... If they didn't get started as a park, they got started with an endowment. Right. It was an estate. Right. Um, and we didn't have that. We started with basically $25,000 worth of clematis yeah. at, at 2005 prices. So and a that, lot of sweat equity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Brewster passed away. Um, we were the beneficiaries of his estate, but it wasn't huge. Mm-hmm. Because um, hmm. he was 94 when he passed away, and so and he you said is, that was in 2015. Yeah, May wow. of 2015. You've referred a couple times to the modern garden. Can you talk about what that is? Right. So within the Rogers and Clematis Garden, we have niche gardens, smaller gardens. Things have been divided up, and so I talked about the beech tree garden. Um, and that has a certain theme as far as the clematis go. The heirloom garden, all the clematis in there, pre World War One, with the roses, with the with the roses. Okay, wow. there's a whole Brilliant. lot more clematis in there than there are roses. <laughs> it's okay. Um, <laughs> they need so roses to support them. We kept, you know, there's the founders garden where Brewster's favorites are. We kept coming up with these different niches and filling them up, but then we ended up with a whole bunch of basically post-World War I clematis that World didn't... II. World War II, right, clematis, thank you, that that didn't fit into any niche that we'd established. Um, we have actually two beds 
dedicated to the beginners list that the mm. International Clematis Society has. You can go on their website, download their Clematis for Beginners. These are the ones that are idiot-proof. They have their own beds. So the modern garden is basically new large-flowered hybrids and new Vitacella groups, so the summer summer blooming ones. And we do have five rows within that garden dedicated to Raymond Evison's introductions mm -hmm. because Raymond has branded himself. People sort of have gotten to know him. He's been a prolific writer about clematis, and he travels a lot. Um, promoting clematis yeah. and his own plants. Yeah, he's and been in the so, Northwest a couple of times at like flower shows. Yeah, yeah, big, big deal. And so people come asking to see his plants. Well, there are just like two of them that have been selected for the beginner's garden. I think Brewster has a couple in the founder's garden. But if you come to the modern garden, rows three through seven are entirely Raymond Evison's introductions. Hmm. So we put all the doubles in one place. It's it's a much different looking garden than the rest of the garden is. And it's physically separated by the driveway into the farm. But it really is the first big showy thing that you see uh, when, you, when you drive in. What are the times of year where those are going to be the most showy? I would say May through October. Okay. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful documentation that you've done. Just to organize and label and, you know, you know, grab that kind of self-contained experience for somebody to really study clematis. I love that idea. Well, and we have people who and show test, up. And we have a test garden. Yeah. The, te well. the test garden is really where the, the real research happens. Sure. Um, because the plants in the modern garden have already been introduced, you know, or trademarked or whatever's going to happen. That's really for, for the garden enthusiasts to come mm -hmm. select what they want to grow at home. Right, yeah. right. And, you know, we have people that show up with a rose blossom and say, I need a clematis that will go with this. And they walk around looking mm. for the right clematis. And so over there, they're in color blocks or they're divided between Raymond Evison int introductions and another very prolific Polish breeder named Szepan Marszynski, who has been a real um, benefactor to mm. us, mm. and Neat. so he he and his stuff is just coming out of the market. It's pretty amazing. So that's uh, that's good to know. May through October. So someone hearing this, uh, this you know, within the next month, will be able to, could come here and schedule a tour. And there's another unique thing about that part of the garden. <clears throat> What's that? There's the old wives' tale that Clematis want their feet in the shade and their head in the sun. And that is a generalization, which means that some of the time it's true. So in that area, the feet, the shady feet component is 16 different varieties of strawberries. Oh, wow. Half of them are June-bearing and half of them are ever-bearing. So basically please come and graze on the strawberries while you're eating because it's more than the volunteers can handle. They grow at the base of the clematis vines. Right. That's brilliant. Wow. Whose idea was that? Well, it's a, it's an idea. It's, it's an idea that we stole uh -huh. from uh, Debbie Fisher who has silver star vinery and she has a smaller garden than that, but she used strawberries as the cover crop there. They keep the weeds down. They provide a little bit of shade. Um, and certainly 
keep weeds down. Yeah, and that's the. Gee, by the way, yeah. there's something to eat here. And you as can well. eat them. Yeah, that's so really well, creative. I love that. We haven't mentioned that the whole Lusher Farm facility, everything that goes on here, is organic. Okay. Excellent. And we and we are too, so we are really the only ornamental public garden, maybe in the state, that is organic. Right. And that's an educational component as well. Right. That's why we were just so keen to do the backyard habitat thing because you've got to have birds in the garden if you're going to have a successful organic garden. And there's clematis in that garden too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I got you off track when you were talking about the test garden. Who's doing the testing and evaluating and introductions? Is that you? Um, So some of those plants are seedlings that have been hanging around since Brewster had the collection. He never did any planned crosses. He never did any any hybridization. On the other hand, he never threw away a seedling. And when you had that many plants together in an 18 by 90 foot greenhouse, things happen. Right. Got it. Natural crosses then. Yeah. So we have actually over there our official registrations for not all, but some of the clematis that we introduced while he was still alive. Wow. Are those going to be moved into the commercial production? Into commercial production? Yeah, some of them already are. In fact, Sixton's Gift is um, available both through us and through Brushwood Nursery in Georgia. Wow. Which is a beautiful pink large-flowered hybrid. Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. So... um, we're not in a position to be like trademarking and stuff because we don't have that kind of money to patent and put mm-hmm. behind it because that takes bucks. But maybe someday. And we don't have a breeding program, but that's not to say that might not happen in the future too. But, um, but the seedlings that are still being trialed, then we have been sent uh, seedlings and we're actually part of a trial that's going on through I want to say Hort Nouveau does okay. that Plants Nouveau Plants Nouveau yeah um, so you're like so, evaluating other yes, people's fruit yes yes and so okay. so I do that primarily and then we get uh, career work experience mm-hmm. students through my connections with Clackamas Community College and they really do a lot to maintain the test garden too mm-hmm. Well, this is so exciting. You guys have been so generous with telling me this story, and you've left me with a lot of handouts, which I, I'm so, uh, hoping this information is also available on your website, right? We just learned and discovered that we can make it available. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, well, that's okay. Or you can come here and pick up um, all kinds of wonderful education. And the beginner's material. list people can download at the clematisinternational.com site. You bet. And by the way, I don't know if you know that Linda is the president of the International Clematis Society. <laughs> Why would I not be surprised? <laughs> and... and in yeah. July, we'll be in England meeting with... Yeah, with the representatives from the Royal Horticulture Society, nurserymen from all over Europe. Um, we It's a working group on clematis classification. Wow. Because so much has happened. So many more species are used in producing the hybrids now than ever were before. And so we're just going to throw all of that one, two, three pruning group crap up in the air up in the air and um and just start over i can tell you how happy i am because i never understood it or remembered it and i always felt like a total flunky like okay i can't cut it in hort class i always i always tell people the clematis 
can't read and they can't count. <laughs> so they don't know, they don't in. know what group they're in. <laughs> this is all something we have imposed on them. And um, I do think gardeners like rules. I think for certain types of personalities, it's a comfort. Mm-hmm. Kind but, of an organizational structure. But yeah. the plants are capable of so much more than than being restricted to three pruning groups. And the idea of pruning group one, where there are clematis that actually shouldn't be pruned, is just total hogwash. I mean, that's ridiculous. I can't think of a single clematis that doesn't at least need to be deadheaded. And then beyond that, it's what do you want the plant to do? What role do you want it to play in your garden? So So it is kind of turning responsibility back over to the gardener, but hopefully with more confidence and and we're here to show them all these different things that you can do and what the possibilities are so we're coming at this point where clematis are at an popularity is at an all-time high right oh yeah i think so what do you attribute that to linda i think um part of it is the is that suddenly it's they're being they're being because there are 325 species and there are on all the major continents except Antarctica there really is something for everybody mm-hmm. and so they're, they're accessible so you've got Raymond Evison and a few other breeders and the Japanese have been doing this longer than ever anybody breeding them to flower on short growth so they can be grown in containers so suddenly suddenly you have a vine that works in an urban garden mm. Um, and looking, we've been doing because of the way our garden is situated. We have been just doing so, having a lot of fun with the clematis that like it hot, mm-hmm. that don't want their feet in the shade, that want the sun from the ground up. So, what are those? Um, you know, we do these big garden shows. We go to Garden Expo in Spokane, which I just love. That Phyllis has been mm-hmm. there, so she knows what a mob scene it is. And so they come up and say. Do they have to have shade? Well, no. Do they have to have full sun? Well, no. I mean... Take your pick. Yeah, yeah take right, your pick. Exactly. So that's why we've really um, pushed... Made these lists. Yeah, yeah to, get, to get the container list and the some like it hot list especially. And um, both of those have a talk that go with them too that I go around and, and cool. do. So. Wow, Linda, this is really great. I guess I, I want to close because so many of our listeners are florists who want to do a little bit of growing. Uh, yeah. And clematis is a, a kind of a premium cut flower. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's not an inexpensive cut flower. So what, um, <clears throat> what advice would you give people who want to just get started growing clematis uh, for cuts? I would say... Start out with the taller herbaceous perennials. Okay. And because you don't have to worry about them grabbing each other and tearing each other up when you're trying to cut the stems apart. Um, Try to grow them outside, not in greenhouses. Product that I see coming out of of greenhouses in Florida um, and other places on the east coast the flowers are small ridiculously small Mm -hmm. compared i mean you wouldn't know it was the same plant and it's because they're grown in lush you know greenhouse conditions so they're producing a lot of flowers but they're small Mm -hmm. and they're the colors are weird Mm -hmm. that way 
Um, but the great thing for somebody who's going to grow outside and you want to grow it just with your other crops is, especially with the, um, the like Arabella mm-hmm. and Durandii and mm-hmm. Alianushka, is that you can just kind of put some wires down either side so they don't actually just flop over on the ground and keep them upright and you don't have to worry about the leaves wrapping around each other and and strangling. Yeah, exactly. And then um, you take the lower foliage off like you do with anything and you use two tablespoons of alcohol in a quart of water and, you know, extrapolate that up if you're putting them in five-gallon buckets and let them drink that overnight, you know, harvest the day before you want to use them or sell them. There you go. Wow. Well, it might help also if you pick up uh, Linda's book, The Plant Lover's Guide to Clematis, and I'll put a link to that in my show notes, and also take time to come down here and visit this amazing resource. Um, I mean, I say down because I'm in Seattle, so I'm thinking, oh, driving down to Portland is three hours. But you know what? Anybody can get to Portland, even by plane, and they can get (laughs) Uber to bring them down here. This is a really special place. Thank you so much, Linda. And Phyllis, thank you for making this happen. Well, thank you. I'm glad that you could be here and join us. Oh, my gosh. Well, we better go and walk. I think the rain stopped. We can walk walk outside. I saved this bonus clip as a wrap-up in which Linda talks about the use of alcohol for cut clematis flowers. Listen to hear her recipe for extending the vase life of cut clematis. Dealing a glancing blow to the topic saying, oh yeah, you use alcohol. And it's like, boodles or, you know, stoli or what am I talking here? What, you know... And when do you use it and what do you use? And so I think it's been three years ago, um, we had a um, career work experience student from Clackamas Community College who was really interested. You remember Kim. Mm-hmm. And we, I said, if you're interested, let's do it. Let's run a bunch of tests and we'll, you know, we've got tons of clematis here, so let's just, let's just do this. So like base life tests, base life tests using, Hmm. using alcohol in every way that we could think of. And sometimes in conjunction with commercial uh, floral preservative and sometimes just on its own, we just went to Rite Aid and bought, and it was all 70%, (laughs) you know, with a little acetone in it so that idiots don't drink it. But we use methyl, ethyl and isopropyl alcohol they all worked equally well. And to get that concentration using drinking alcohol, like a vodka or a gin, you would have to use twice as much because the proofing is different. Right, but the reference yeah. to alcohol from the Japanese literature and from uh, Raymond Evanson was, is it Evanson? Uh-huh. Uh, was nonspecific, so right. you weren't really right. sure what they meant by alcohol. Right, right. Huh. So, it's like an old wives' tale almost, or a home remedy. Yeah, except that... It works. So what Kim discovered was with floral preservative of some other sort or not, in a quart of water, two tablespoons of alcohol, Hmm. just like you would buy at the drugstore, 70% solution. And you can get 90% on those things. 
and the 10% is the little bit of acetone they put in there. Hmm. Um, but then we determined with a very cheap vodka that if you were going to use cheap drinking alcohol, you had to double the amount because mm-hmm. it's so half the proof. Four tablespoons or whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Which I think is getting close to a quarter of a cup hmm. in a quart of water. Yeah. And um, it's the difference between five or six days and 17 or 20 days. Oh my God. Yeah. And we used Arabella. So we were using just that one cultivar. Mm -hmm. um, And we were picking them when the primary bud on the stem was cracked, but not fully open. And do you write about that in the um, Plant Lover's Guide to Clements? I just give you the recipe and say, this is the thing. Okay. This is what you do. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. The other thing is that it's the exact same solution for hellebores. And that I already knew because when I was teaching a commercial floral design class at Clackamas Community College, it was always in the winter. And what do you do? Yeah. So, um, and of course, hellebores, everybody's always complained that you just get really sketchy results. So again, Cole Burrell writes that great book on hellebores that he wrote for Timber Press and there's like two paragraphs about using cut flowers, and it says use alcohol. What? Do I drink it? Do they drink it? Let's have some specifics here. So, oh, I get it. If you're drinking alcohol, everything looks really good. Yeah. So, um, That's great. So my class actually did the experiments that time, and we had actually, the first time we ran the experiments, we had 17 different vases from a control that was just plain water through... All of it. Okay. Yeah. Found oh the gosh. same thing. I love it. Thanks so much for listening today. You can see my gallery of photos from my recent visit to the Rogerson Clematis Garden, as well as images of Linda's floral designs with Clematis. Follow links to all the resources we discussed and find details on scheduling your own tour or private class at the Rogerson Clematis Garden for when you go to Portland. The Slow Flowers podcast has been downloaded more than 212,000 times by listeners like you. If you value the content you receive each week, I invite you to show your thanks and support the Slow Flowers podcast with a donation. The button can be found on our homepage in the right column. Your contributions will help make it possible to transcribe future episodes of the podcast. Thank you to our family of sponsors, Arctic Alaska Peonies, a cooperative of 50 family farms in the heart of Alaska, providing high-quality, American-grown peony flowers during the months of July and August. Visit them today at arcticalaskapeonies.com. The Seattle Wholesale Growers Market, a farmer-owned cooperative committed to providing the very best the Pacific Northwest has to offer in cut flowers, foliage, and plants. The Growers Market's mission is to foster a vibrant marketplace that sustains local flower farms and provides top quality products and services to the local floral industry. Find them at seattlewholesalegrowersmarket.com. Longfield Gardens provides home gardeners with high quality flower bulbs and perennials. Their online store offers plants for every region and every season. From tulips and daffodils to dahlias, caladiums, and amaryllis, visit them at lfgardens.com. Syndicate Sales, an American manufacturer of vases and accessories for the professional florist. 
Look for the American flag icon to find syndicates, USA-made products, and join the Syndicate Stars loyalty program at syndicatesales.com. Johnny Selected Seeds, an employee-owned company that provides our industry with the best flower, herb, and vegetable seeds, supplied to farms large and small, and even backyard cutting gardens like mine. Check them out at johnnysseeds.com. The Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers, formed in 1988, ASCFG was created to educate, unite, and support commercial cut flower growers. Its mission is to help growers produce high-quality floral material and to foster and promote the local availability of that product. Learn more at ASCFG.org. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers Podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more American-grown flowers on the table, one vase at a time. And if you like what you hear, please consider logging on to iTunes and posting a listener review. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. Learn more about his work at kinetictreefitness.com. Thank you.